0: Like even Michael Burry doesn't understand Bitcoin derivatives. He's like, do you have to collateralize crypto shorts? That was like a pretty aha moment for me. I was like, oh my God, this isn't just misunderstood by just you know, newbies. Like one of the greatest speculators ever doesn't understand a clue. Like he, he has no idea. Digging into that is kind of its own rabbit hole in itself.
1: Welcome back to The Breakdown with me, NLW. It's a daily podcast on macro, Bitcoin, and the big picture power shifts remaking our world. The Breakdown is sponsored by NYDIG and produced and distributed by Coindesk. What's going on, guys? It is Wednesday, November 24th, and today we are starting something a little bit different. For the next few days, I'm going to be doing something I'm calling a Gratitude for Bitcoin miniseries. It is, of course, a Thanksgiving-themed show, and it will take place on Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday. That means that on Thursday, which is, of course, Thanksgiving in the U.S., there will not be a show. Now, it's been more than 500 days since last there wasn't a show, but it was time to break the streak, and Thanksgiving, a day for quiet and gratitude and contemplation, seemed like an okay day. I'll be back on Friday, like I said, and then Saturday and Sunday, and then on and on forever and ever. Amen. The idea of this Gratitude for Bitcoin miniseries is to explore things that are shaping the Bitcoin ecosystem right now with some of the folks who are most involved in both shaping that ecosystem as well as chronicling it. The first up is Dylan LeClaire, and if you listen regularly, you've heard me quote Dylan. He works at Bitcoin Magazine and UTXO Management and has quickly become one of the most listened to Bitcoin analysts out there. So without any further ado, let's welcome Dylan to the show. I am here with the man, the myth, the legend himself, Dylan Lequeur. Uh, Dude, I was just saying this uh, uh, to you before, but I feel like... I have to quote your analysis or tweet of yours, like, you know, probably every other, every, every third show at this point, um, you've come out of, you know, re- relative nowhere, really fast to be one of, uh, one of the most valuable and consistent Bitcoin analysts. So thank you for your work, A and B, um, let's start by just, you know, tell, tell everyone kind of what your story is, how you, how you got into this space, what attracted you to it and, and what you spend your time on.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I really appreciate you having me on and, and always shouting me out. Uh, it, it means a lot and it's pretty cool to see. Um, I guess like you know, a little of my background, um, you know, a lot of people m- may have heard before, but um, I'm 20 years old, um, kind of joined Bitcoin Magazine uh, earlier in, in 2021. Um, b- before that, I was, I was attending university and business school, always loved numbers like a finance, economics, kind of like, uh, you know, niche, I guess. Like I, I didn't really know what I what I wanted, but was just always kind of fascinated with problem solving. Um we got sent home from, from COVID uh early in, in 2020. Uh and that was at the same time, like I had dabbled in Bitcoin, um, and just kind of learning passively about it for the last like, I don't know, eighteen months, twenty-four months, um, since like, you know, late uh years of high school. I was just like I was aware of the ICO bubble, didn't really didn't have any skin in the game. I was like a 16 year old, but <laughs> but uh, you know, and then from there I guess uh I dropped out of school because the covid kind of woke me up to like, whoa, what's the value prop of of this Zoom university that I'm paying for when like I'm literally like, I could tune into your podcast every day and like learn real time what's happening, not what theory like theory says about a textbook 30 years ago, right? And so like it just it just wasn't worth it and and I, you know, worked manual labor honestly for like months on end um while I was just listening to podcasts. But I, I really just knew that uh one, I got recently orange pilled and was like, I need to accumulate Bitcoin. So the opportunity cost for of college for me was like was Satoshis, not just the debt I paid, but the productivity that I couldn't like, you know, the work I couldn't do. Um and so just kind of stumbled into a, you know, uh I, I guess through Twitter, um, you know, better to be lucky than good, but maybe we create our own luck. Um, into a job, a Bitcoin job, um, where really like I, f- I feel at home and, and I can just like my job is essentially to like hang out on Twitter and interact with people and, and look at the markets every day. Now, um, I produce a, a thing called the Deep Dive every uh, every day. I, I help put that on uh, with Sam Rule, who's another awesome analyst. And we just basically cover on-chain stuff, derivative stuff, market structure, uh, macro economics, and we try to tie it all together uh, with this long-term thesis we have about Bitcoin as a monetary asset. So uh, that's, you know, that's a quick quick background, but, um, you know, I don't know if I glazed I over anything there.
1: No, it's awesome, man. So I, I guess one thing, that, the, the only other piece that I want to kind of share, because I think a lot of people, you know, I hear from listeners all the time who are like trying to figure out how to get into Bitcoin and what they want to do, like they, they have a sort of similar passion. How did you go from being orange-pilled and getting excited to actually diving into the data, right? Because I think one of the things that's really interesting, I think you may have it might have been today that you tweeted when when we're recording was um just reading Bitcoin on-chain data or understanding Bitcoin is like having cheat codes, right? For for the world. Like how did you start actually looking at on-chain data? And maybe let's move from that into what are the things that you, you know, not for articles, not for kind of like Twitter analysis, but just because you want to understand like every day, what are you looking at? What do you, what do you check out? What are your favorite indicators?
0: Yeah. So I, I guess I would I'd start by saying um, more so I think my, like the, the cheat code is, is understanding that Bitcoin is going to store your time and labor better than anything the world has ever seen. And then, you know, maybe a couple, couple months, a couple years of, of, you know, putting into that and, and like. Believing in that and acting on it, and then and then you know you you wake up one day and and you're in a better position than you would have been otherwise, I guess. Um, and it's different for everybody, but it, Bitcoin changes a lot of things in terms of time preference. I mean, I've seen it; I've seen it a million times. When someone grow, like you know groks Bitcoin and then comes to understand it, I think fundamentally, you're you're. It sounds cheesy, but like your life changes in a way. Uh, at least you know maybe how you allocate capital, how you uh, you know how many hours you work, you know, what you spend your time on, et cetera. Um so that's kind of what I meant more by by understanding it but um I guess recently at this past year I became pretty fascinated with on-chain analytics and luckily like being in the spot I was at Bitcoin Magazine um they were like able to to help me out with a, with like all of all of that stuff all of that data that that isn't available to everyone unfortunately um and, and just kind of it was it's so fascinating because the Bitcoin ledger has the like it has transparent property rights Re- immutably recorded uh, forever for the, it's, its entire history. It's unlike any asset we've ever seen. Um, so, you know, while Bitcoin has these seemingly random bull and bear markets, um, a lot of this stuff you can actually see like basically, uh, you know, build up under the surface, right? It's like, you know, HODLers set the floor for three years uh, and, and eventually any new capital that wants to come into the Bitcoin market is competing for like this really small free flow of supply and we go parabolic. And then, and then those kind of long-term holders distribute out and, and we see the cyclicality that some people may be like, oh, this is completely random and, and it's exacerbated by derivatives. But really, like the most fascinating thing is like a lot of this stuff is not so random and it's actually like we can see it in the, in the data every day, week, month and year. And it's pretty fascinating block by block.
1: NYDIG sponsors this podcast, and they're helping CFOs, traders, and risk managers safely and securely integrate Bitcoin into their operations. Learn more about what NYDIG does and how they do it at nidigcom NLW. That's NYDIG.com slash NLW. One of the things that I've liked about your analysis, you kind of almost hinted at it when you were discussing the way that you guys think at at Bitcoin Magazine, was trying to align a 10-year kind of vision or horizon with what the data is telling you now. And I think that that's what you see a lot in in sort of the analysis you share. How do you think about where kind of macro events uh, and Bitcoin in the world uh, ends and market structure takes over. I mean, a lot of the things that people want to know about on any given day are why did number go up or why did number go down, which is something you you cover a lot. How much do you come at this from kind of a a macro or math perspective? Where do you, where, where do you combine them?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I would, I would say, um, you know, that 10 year, I mean, mean, far longer than 10 years, the hyper Bitcoinization thesis is that Bitcoin is going to obsolete, um, you know, $500 trillion or, you know, even if you want to say conservatively 100, which may not sound conservative to some, but you know a few hundred trillion dollars of, of assets, and it's going to demonetize that, dematerialize that. Um, and so that's, uh, that's my belief. That's most people at Bitcoin Magazine's belief and increasingly around the world, um, more and more people's institutions and maybe even some government's beliefs. Um, and so a lot of the analysis I do, um, how I allocate capital on a personal basis, as well as um, recently joining UTXO Management and And they're basically trying to outperform, actively outperform Bitcoin, which is, which I should say is no tough task, uh, is is no easy task. Um, You know, like I basically, my interest is inquiring as much Bitcoin as possible. So a lot of this stuff that I'm looking at, um, I'm using it like on a personal level and I'm not selling, like I'm not, I'm not going out and selling my Bitcoin here and buying it here and selling it here. It's rather just choosing when to allocate capital, potentially choosing when to speculatively attack the dollar and lever up in a way that you know is it is advantageous from a risk reward standpoint and so you know a lot of the daily stuff even weekly um it's, it's often driven by derivatives um you know like you'll, you'll see these huge dislocations and, and perps like in the in the bear market in 2018 you saw basically like with bitmex dominating every spot exchange volume you saw like the constant bart simpson candle right like you like up and then, uh, you know, huge vertical green candle consolidation, then a huge red one, like all that stuff. That's not like, you know, that's basically all just derivative driven. And so like for, for most of the market, like what we're seeing now, even it's kind of just like a reduction in leverage since the 69K all time high. It was just a bunch of people got overzealous and greedy and essentially, you know, the market's kind of flushing them out. It's like volatility and price discovery are going to kind of throw any anyone that's trying to get a free lunch off before we're going uh, going through all-time highs. So, you know, most of that daily stuff, it's, you know, I mean, I like I like watching it and I like uh, you know, acting on it, but um for the average person, it it honestly is like you can find it fascinating, but it really doesn't affect Bitcoin over the long term.
1: Yeah, I think this is so this is a really salient point which seems kind of obvious, but also is not said that frequently, which is that There's a lot to be derived from understanding short-term movements without letting them really overly concern you in the context of long-term theses, right? Like, it is super useful to understand, for example, where... Uh, where Bitcoin is in relation to its correlation to traditional finance markets. Uh, it's it's sort of um, the impact of macro events on it on a kind of short-term level. And you can have that sort of uh, intrigue without... Really being concerned about so without without it changing your long term thesis, right? And so maybe maybe just to ask that question. So we saw a really interesting thing happen last Wednesday, or I guess it, it'll be a couple of Wednesdays ago by the time that people hear this. But uh, the day that the the CPI report came out from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, higher than expected numbers, six point two percent inflation, highest uh, in thirty one years, and you actually saw Bitcoin hit its new all time high. Uh, you know, right as that happened. Um, only to get washed out hours later, and um it seemed to a lot of folks that part of what was going on on the on the flip side is, uh, it was just the markets going risk off because there was at the same time, basically almost at exactly the same time, huge rumors coming out of China that Evergrande was actually defaulting. And so, you know, the, the kind of the, the, the stock market went risk off and blah, 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 blah. You were, you were obviously watching that whole thing. What was your take as that was happening? What were you noticing, you know, maybe sort of from that, from the derivative side, from the market structure side?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I think everyone, including myself was a little you know, excited or, um, you know, pleased to see Bitcoin just absolutely rip following the CPI print. Um, and and honestly, I mean, I I know for for a fact that there are like institutions that are that are allocating and not like you know market buying a billion dollars of Bitcoin, but like a lot of the the funds that previously like couldn't wouldn't touch Bitcoin, wouldn't even think about it or say anything about it, um, call it a you know a Ponzi scheme or for criminals and maybe twenty. 16 2017 20, 2018 20, 2019 20, um now in 2021 are actively at, like establishing very minimal sized allocations right but like a 100 billion dollar insurance fund buys a 20 basis point allocation or like a, you know just something really small that they're going to average in and not sell for the next decade and they're going to you know they're going to be in, in the market you know just passively and with very small small numbers for their portfolio but like um you know huge numbers at like securing allocations, Bitcoin allocations. Um, But, you know, at the same time, we saw derivative markets skyrocket up. It was it wasn't like a, you know, a bunch of spot buying the second the CPI hit, unfortunately. Uh, But I think I think the bullish thing is, um, you know, the floor essentially like, um, you know, Bitcoin's uh, I think I like looking at realized price, which is like an on-chain cost basis, um you could see like basically with every utxo with every bitcoin like what's the average price that these coins were acquired for that continues to just creep up you're seeing because you're seeing like marginally like old old hands will sell uh and 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 you're not seeing that on a, on a big scale a large scale right now but just passively you're seeing as as bitcoin kind of is just floating around at 60,000 that like floor almost that that on-chain cost basis of every of every single coin continues to just kind of rise up a little bit and so like you know, when it's ranging around like this, like, you know, it's a good thing. I know there's passive allocators. I'm, I'm one of them. Um, And most people I know in the Bitcoin space are passively allocating. So I just think of that as the free float is getting smaller every single day. Um, And, and the big money is just starting to dabble in it, which is, you know, why, I mean, besides like, you know, I'm fundamentally like, like I said, the 10 year bullish thesis. Uh, But even over the next weeks, months, uh, quarter, uh, six months, like, I, we're not at a double top at 68,000. I just That's just not, uh, at least fundamentally, that's what I believe.
1: Perfect segue. I was going to ask you next kind of uh, around your thoughts on market cycle. So it's, it's always an interesting question to ask market cycle because that question even comes with presumption. It's like, it, it used to mean, if you ask most people even a year ago, it'd be like, where in the four-year historic market cycle of bull and bear organized around halvings do you think we are? But now the question is kind of like, well, one, what is your perception of where we are in the market cycle? And two, what is your perception of the market cycle in general? Have we broken out of that four-year pattern? Is that pattern still intact, but it's going to be, exert less influence uh, or something else entirely? I, I find this question fascinating for almost everyone, but certainly you think about it a lot more than most people.
0: Yeah. I think the the notion of the four-year cycle is, is I mean, it may coincidentally top um, in December, but I, I just don't think the having uh you know that 210,000 block cycle i don't think that's the primary driver of of this market anymore um just because of i mean the inflation is is like 1.8% uh annualized um you know miners for the most part are actually not even like because for increasingly miners are entering public capital markets uh you know they're not even selling their bitcoin right so so for the most part it's it's you know other forces that are driving this and and really what i think drives the cycle is Under the surface, you'll see like hodlers set the floor. Um, And so you see like with the data I look at, you have like long-term and short-term holders. And the quantification of that, there's a pretty like strong statistical relationship between the longer a UTXO is held, the the less likely it is to be spent into the future, the less likely it is to be spent again. And so 155 days is like this pretty significant statistical threshold. And so when you're looking at like relationships between long-term and short-term holders, you see during bear markets and during consolidation periods, Long-term holders are scaling into positions. They're just, are just not selling. You're seeing this long-term holder supply just continue to up and to the right. Um, and and during bull markets, you see the the, the players that established um, that basically established allocations positions um, during during the bear, during consolidation. will just take a little bit off the top, and so that long-term holder supply distributes into new participants that are following and buying the parabola, right? During a reflexive bull market. And so we actually didn't even see any sort of profit taking, but more so accumulation basically like all the way up into October when we like Bitcoin first kind of hit that 60K threshold, like no profit taking, no classic bull market, you know, distribution dynamics, like we can see the data and it didn't happen. And so that's just starting to take effect, but like barely even like anything significant. And so I kind of believe that the the spring is still coiled in the sense that any you know new money that comes in, they're going to have to competitively bid up the price, um, and so we will see profit taking increasingly as the price goes higher. The incentive to sell goes up uh, with the price. I mean that that's pretty that's pretty obvious, but most people just like my uh, my friend Pete Rizzo, of Bitcoin Magazine. He calls Bitcoin tops a psychological attack on hodlers. You just hit mind blowing numbers that you're like, oh my god, like how could I not just shave a little bit off the top? And so. You see that you know collectively uh, the marginal buyer gets exhausted and new supply hits the market and and price goes down and finds a new equilibrium that's often a lot lower. Uh, but I, I still think that we haven't even hit that like reflexive stage of the bull market where you know we see a parabola and we see new money just flooding in and a bunch of old coins taking profits. Like we haven't seen that at all. So I kind of think that the fundamental driver is that dynamic and it's completely human psychology. As well as, you know, the macro environment and how crazy the central banks are and forcing people into this asset. Um, but I, I don't think that, you know, that the having cycle, the traditional four years is 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 what at play anymore. I think it's more of like we could just see what we saw in twenty twenty. It's like rounded top, rounded bottom, chug higher, like a new floor is established. Like I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, but I also wouldn't be surprised to see Bitcoin go absolutely parabolic. Like I I think it's something that you, you can't say three months out, you just have to you know, wait and see how it all plays.
1: Yeah, it's super interesting. I mean, one of the things that I've been kind of watching a lot too is uh, almost contributing that, like contributing to that sort of um, vision that you're explaining is if you, if you believe that obviously there are more Uh, There's more overlap with traditional markets in terms of like the body of holders now includes that set of people, right, who have come in over the course of the last 18 months. I think we should probably expect to see more short term correlation around risk on risk off movements just because some of those people come with mandates part of what makes Bitcoin so much more attractive than something like gold is that it's liquid. So it's very easy to move in and out really quickly, even if you haven't lost conviction. And one of the things that I find really fascinating is, you know, <clears throat> you almost have to assume like, so, so again, going back to that, that kind of day where we hit the the highs of the inflation print and then we're quickly, quickly went risk off. It's like, why not shave a little off a position if you've just hit a new all time high? That's actually a non scary, like doesn't reduce conviction in the asset. Uh, kind of position or a move for a traditional manager to make, and so it wouldn't surprise me if we start to see more of those kind of like rapid mini cycles, you know, where it's like just hit a new all time high, something comes in that you know calls into question the state of the macro or where Bitcoin's going to fit in there, and so there's kind of a, a, a shaving, you know, exacerbated by leverage, but then it sort of cycles right back, uh, and in the, the meantime, it's still to your point, is there's a lot of different things that are kind of marching progressively higher on the on the flip side.
0: Yeah, I think it's really fascinating. Basically, like what makes Bitcoin so attractive? Why Bitcoin is is trading at sixty thousand, fifty nine thousand, whatever it is right now? Uh, it's because of. I mean, I think, and you cover this all the time on your show is is the, the macroeconomic environment. It's the, the everything bubble, right? Nominal yields have been basically crushed over the last forty years, uh, and now the only way to get out of this uh, global debt to GDP spiral we're in, uh, whether it's public debt, uh, you know. Public and private debt—it's uh, basically it's just financial repression and, and and you know high inflation readings while keeping yields pinned. I mean that's the only way out of this is they just have to erode the real value of, of debts away. And so in that sense, like the fiat is is the error in that in that uh, you know is the error term. My uh, my friend Greg Foss likes to say that. Um, and so so bondholders, uh, every everyone else is is guaranteed to lose. Even equity holders when you're buying. At these valuations, I mean, personally, I use Bitcoin as my unit of account, um, and I think I think that's the winning strategy over the next decade, uh, and it, and it has been over the last. Um, but I think as Bitcoin grows from a you know one trillion dollar asset to a five trillion dollar asset, I mean, and I know that's a little bit away, um, you know, maybe maybe closer than some think, but it'll it'll eventually get there. And I think as it gets gets to these these bigger and bigger levels, what you'll see is like Bitcoin is the most pure form. Of, of credit uh, expansion or contraction in the legacy system. It's the most pure form of like the, the the reading on the everything bubble and just how crazy things have become um, because essentially like, you know, no, if, if the fed and these other central banks just stopped, if they stopped printing, if they raised rates and whatever, like the bond market went no bid in last, last March, right. In March of 2020. So like, so how much, how much of this, like we would see the biggest deflationary depression ever, as all fiat currency in a fractional reserve system collapsed to nothing. And so they have to step in and print. And I think that's where where Bitcoin essentially just as this like global monetary asset increasingly becomes like the most pure form. I mean, we also have to remember like the, the Dixie's at 95, right? Uh with with the you know the the global macro environment with, with the dollar as the world reserve currency, even if there's like high CPI uh prints and like you know, asset and consumer inflation is really high, at the same time, like everyone else is in dollar denominated debt around the globe. And so if their currency is weakening against the dollar, well, that like, you know, there's some, there's some variables there for like a, for a deleveraging. So I don't think like, you know, I think that plays into effect as well, but I think just like broadly, like over the next decade, Bitcoin becomes like the definition of like the macro asset. It's almost like a a pure like check or like gut call on central banks.
1: Could not agree more. Um, And I want to, I want to maybe just close with a, One related a little bit to this and to cycle tops. Um you mentioned recently or or were uh tweeting about um this marathon. Marathon's kind of, let's call it their sailor strategy of issuing more debt to buy Bitcoin. And part of what you were discussing is how this is different than minor behavior we've seen in the past and suggests a different uh attitude. And I think this is really important because it feels to me like there's a I don't know what the right word for it is. It's not like there's a skepticism that there's more to go. It's more just like I think a lot of folks in Bitcoin have PTSD from uh, from calling you know calling tops or, or seeing you know too many top signals or something like that. And so I don't know that everyone wants to believe that there's like a lot more to go, and they're like kind of bracing themselves for some extended winter because they've been through it before, but you know, looking at the behavior of companies in this space, it's a little bit different. So just talk to us, I guess, about what what Marathon did and and kind of why it's uh, different relative to what we've seen before.
0: Yeah. So so Marathon and a lot of these publicly traded miners, um, and this is kind of like a recent phenomenon, 2020, 2021, uh, this trend started, is that these public miners are acquiring Bitcoin um, for, for super, super cheap. I mean, I think like Marathon or like hut Aid or some of these Riot they're like marginal production costs is like 10K, sometimes lower, sometimes a little higher depending on the facility and where they're mining. But, um, you know, minor, mining has become super profitable, especially over the last year as hash rate hasn't been able to keep up. And so they're mining all this Bitcoin and they're rapidly expanding their operations, but they don't have to sell any Bitcoin because they can take that Bitcoin and, uh, you know, keep it with a custodian who will, who will extend them a credit line off of that. And for the custodian, for the bank, for the lender, it's it's far better than just lending unsecured with claims on their business and having to liquidate everything. Like traditionally, they're over collateralized. So like for, for banks, lending against over collateralized Bitcoin, I mean, yes, there's, I guess, some sort of counterparty risk or maybe liquidity risk or whatever. But in terms of, of alternatives, like Bitcoin is the best form of collateral the world has ever seen. And it's volatile, but you can account for that with the over collateralization. Like it literally is a no loss business for banks. And so we're kind of seeing over the last... I would say 12 months, uh, especially and you know, with Sailor championing the strategy uh, loud and clear for everyone to see, saying, "Hey, the cost of capital is is a lie." And so I'm gonna do, I'm gonna lever up, uh, and I'm gonna speculative attack the dollar in a way where you know I'm I'm five years out, six years out, seven years out, uh, paying six percent coupon uh, on, on this on this debt, and so you know I'm, it's secured against my Bitcoin, but my Bitcoin's appreciating by an order of magnitude. So it doesn't really matter. And so there's no these miners, they don't even have to sell. Um, you know, at current levels. I think eventually hash rate will continue to you know, and difficulty will continue to ratchet up and it'll it'll pressure on these on their margins. Uh, but in terms of what the supply chains are looking like and, and all that, um, you know, these miners are gonna be deep in the money for a while and now they can expand and and you know grow their operations without even selling a single satoshi, which is, you know, far different than the dynamic in the first, you know, Seven eight years of bitcoin, ten years of Bitcoin, because you know they were forced sellers, uh, and no one would lend to a bitcoin miner i mean that that sounded ridiculous um, but so the game has changed and, and it's pretty big.
1: Last question for you for now, um and this is awesome we should do this more often, but uh what is something that not enough people are paying attention to you that seems just blaring or clear uh you know in your day to day
0: huh um that's a good question um I think
1: and that hmm. could be positive or negative. That's not, that's not like a, uh, what warning signs are people missing or anything like that? It could be the exact opposite too.
0: Yeah. I think, um, I guess just like, you know, and this is more like I said earlier, kind of day to day, but I think the derivatives markets like often like very misunderstood. Um, in terms of like, like, you know, people say it's like really bad or, or maybe it's good, but you see, you know, we need to get the leverage out of these markets or like how, how do you know, these D hold us back every single time. Uh, but I think derivatives are just like the most natural we have. It's the most free market the world has ever seen. Uh, like not derivatives, but Bitcoin, the, the Bitcoin price action. And so like, yes, derivatives, you know, uh, exacerbate volatility at times. Um, but you know, the most, it's the most, you know, kind of beautiful, capitalistic thing we've ever seen. And if you're, and if you're kind of, uh, you know, over leveraged or like, go go too far out on the risk curve, well, you're going to lose your holdings. And so um, I think just in terms of like market cycle and derivatives, uh, is often very misunderstood. I mean, the derivatives market was was extremely long at the top in April and extremely short at the bottom in July. Um, so we're people looking at that, like, why is the price action still going down? And it was like all derivative driven, right? While everyone is stacking in the bottom of the summer. Just stuff like that, I think, uh, you know, a little more understanding because it's, it's not even, like even Michael Burry doesn't understand Bitcoin derivatives. He's like, he's like, do you have to collateralize uh, Bitcoin crypto shorts? And I was like, that was like a pretty aha moment for me. I was like, oh my God, like, this isn't just misunderstood by, like, by just you know newbies. Like, one of the greatest speculators ever doesn't understand a clue. Like he, he has no idea. Um, so I think just kind of you know, digging into that is kind of its own rabbit hole in itself. Um, and I'm not encouraging people to go speculate with leverage, but just like understanding that uh, effect, what, what effect uh, these markets have on the Bitcoin price uh, and the day-to-day kind of seemingly random chop and volatility is, is something that I think is, is probably pretty misunderstood.
1: Cheers to that, man. Well, listen, thank you so much for hanging out. Uh, Happy Thanksgiving. Uh, Appreciate you spending your time here and uh, look forward to our next conversation.
0: This is really fun, man. Let's do it again.
1: The thing that stands out to me reflecting on that conversation is Dylan's idea of Bitcoin as a cheat code. He had such a crisp summation of what that meant. And even when I saw the concept on Twitter, I thought it was fascinating. As I mentioned in the interview, one of the things that I think that's so powerful about the way that Dylan engages with the world is his ability to do micro-level on-chain analysis in the context of a macro world that he's also actively trying to understand. That combination of macro and micro gives him superpowers, and I hope the show can bring you a bit of that on the daily. So with that, guys, that's the end of our first of a three-part miniseries Gratitude for Bitcoin I hope you are headed to a wonderful Thanksgiving, and even if that's not a holiday that you celebrate, that you have much context for gratitude. Until Friday, guys, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.